Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorigan. On today's episode, I uh, speak with uh, Tyler Akedow, one of the lead engineers in Google's streaming and data flow technologies. He recently wrote an extremely popular article on O'Reilly.com, and that article provided a framework for how to think about bounded and unbounded data processing. A follow-up article is due out soon. In this episode, we talk about the evolution of stream processing, the challenges of building systems to scale to massive data sets, and the recent surge in interest in all things real-time. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome to the Data Show, Tyler. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I think let's start with uh, uh, giving the audience a little bit about uh, a background about yourself. So you started out at Isilon. Uh, and that's a uh, storage company known for uh, digital media and unstructured data. So well, what did you do at Isilon? Yeah, so they, they basically build like scale-out NAS-type boxes. Um, I started out on the hardware team there, uh, so doing some driver-level stuff, uh, doing some manufacturing test framework stuff. Uh, also did some kernel-level stuff eventually, some user-level stuff, some RPC layer stuff. And so kind of touched a little bit of everything. So really, it there. sounds like really hardcore... Uh, uh, system stuff. Yeah, that was that was a lot of hardcore systems people. There it was a really interesting, uh, really interesting place to work. So then, at some point, you decided to go back to school uh, for oh. a master's. Uh, oh right, that was actually a that was a night program. Oh, a night program. Okay, yeah. yeah. And uh, what was your area of focus? Uh, so this is at the University of Washington. Correct. Which is also where I got my bachelor's. I mean, both both were really just general um, CSE stuff. Um, the master's was just a chance to to hit some more. Uh, areas that I hadn't hit before. So wait a minute, no no thesis? No, no, it's just a night program. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So was there any particular area where you took more classes in? Um, not really. I mean, I, I really tried to just try to get breadth out of it. Um, so I, you know, there was, there was no specific focus. I just tried to hit everything I could. So when you were in school, uh, some, of the, or some of the distributed systems that we've come to know started coming out probably, right? So Hadoop and HBase and all these things. Mm-hmm. So were those uh, things that you were paying at- attention to at the time? Um, not so, not, certainly not during my bachelor's. During my master's a little bit, um, but I was more just kind of in dis- into distributed systems in general. I didn't really get into big data type data processing stuff until uh, a few years later. By the way, I don't know if you know this, but... Uh, the co-creator of Hadoop, Mike Caffarella, was a grad student at the uh, UW. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. But the he actually uh, started Hadoop and Nutch with Doug Cutting. But okay. then he was a, a grad student, and then he decided, well, I'm gonna, I'm more interested in becoming a professor. So he kind of uh, uh, retired from the project. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Um, so at Google, uh, have you always been in on the infrastructure team? No, I actually started out on Google Analytics. Oh, uh, we had a we had a little front end team, uh, so I ended up on there, and I, it still I still ended up doing something relatively infrastructurey, basically moving helping move off of MySQL onto Megastore uh, for the configuration database. Um, right, right. Um, uh, so the Google Analytics team actually uh, that was an acquisition, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and. Uh, Actually, I, I use that too. I mean, so uh, a lot of uh, DevOps people that I know at least uh, start out using Google Analytics because one, it's free. 
<laughs> and you can store a lot of data in it. So, yeah. Yeah. But uh, so actually, so this actually makes sense. So uh, in many ways, that's very real timey. Yeah, it is. And I, I, you know, that was sort of that, you know, joining analytics kind of got me into seeing, you know, how all the, how this data processing stuff was happening. And also at the same time, right when I, when I joined Google, um, was very shortly after the, the Millwell project had been started in Seattle. Um, and Seattle was a pretty small office then. So like you kind of knew about all the projects and I just, I just thought Millwell was such a cool project when I started, I really wanted to be on that team. Um, so as soon as I'd kind of done enough on analytics and was able to switch, I, I did what I could to, to move over to Millwheel. So at that time, uh, what was the goal of Millwheel? So actually, before you do that, let's explain what Millwheel is. So Millwheel is our stream processing engine. You know, it's essentially targeted at doing um, strongly consistent, reliable uh, stream data processing. Uh, it was originally uh, envisioned for uh, a couple use cases. Um, one of them that I can talk about is the the one that was highlighted in the Millwheel paper, which was the, the Zeitgeist system, which is a, uh, essentially an anomaly detection system. Um, so, so just as way of background, so that uh, particular product would not have been possible without Millwheel, is that? Well, so there there was an existing product, um, or an existing version of that product that that ran on top of MapReduce, but they they wanted to decrease their latency. They they wanted to stop running repeated jobs. Like they want you know they wanted to. It's a it's a continuous streaming problem. They wanted to solve it in the right way. So, and so probably the previous version, uh, the the reporting was not very fresh then. Yeah, it, it absolutely was a you know major win for you know uh, decreasing latency. So then, uh, so then someone at Google decided we need a, a new stream processing engine, and so this became Millwheel. And uh, uh, how soon after before that project launched? Uh, when you joined, because nowadays I kind of identify you as one of the Millwheel leads, right? So. Right. So I'm currently one of the tech leads. I had I had joined uh, I joined the team after it was about two years old. Okay. So it was it was definitely established enough to have a number of customers, but it was still relatively early days. But so it was production at that time. Yeah, we definitely had production customers at that point, and so so I've been on the team for about five and a half years since. Um, so let's. Uh, give a quick history of stream processing engines up to Millwheel. Because I remember, um, I don't know, circa maybe 2002, 2004, you had kind of these academic projects that became startups. Uh, most of them were single node stream processing engines that uh, you could use SQL with. Um, but and and some and uh, many of them either targeted finance or kind of marketing analytics. Did you guys look at some of those academic projects for inspiration? Um, so so I wasn't involved in the early, the very early formation of the project. So I'm not actually sure if they did or not. Uh, certainly, once I had joined the project, I I dove into you know a lot of, like you said a lot of those projects came out of literature you know academic literature. So I kind of dove into that and got familiar with all that. Um, but I know, like one of the one of the primary founders of the project, Paul Nordstrom, was involved in finance, and he'd done some some real time stuff in that area. So I think that was where a lot of his stuff came from was just this experiences he'd had in the finance realm, and you know things he'd been thinking about over the years of how he wanted to build the system. So uh, so now, if you were to describe uh, the state of Millwheel, what are the what what are some of the key 
uh, things that Millwheel brings to the stream processing table? So Millwheel itself is a stream processing engine. I think the the, the biggest thing is is um, or I guess so Tyler, uh, uh, why not just use one of these outside uh, open source uh, projects? Right. <laughs> so I mean, the the biggest thing is uh, well, there's a few things. Um, one is so at, at the time, you know, there was there was as far as I know, literally nothing externally that had uh, could handle the scale that we needed to handle. Right. 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 Um, also, so it was basically you were forced to build something. Yeah. Um, a lot of the existing streaming systems didn't focus on out-of-order processing, um, which right. was a big deal for us internally. Um, and also, we really wanted a, a strong focus on consistency of you know being able to get absolutely correct answers. You should be able to run a building pipeline on this, you know those sorts of things. And and all of all three of these things were were kind of lacking, um, at least in some area for everyone. Yeah, because uh, many of the streaming systems. Um maybe uh, billing would be kind of uh, not one of the key applications, right? So that seems like a, a kind of something that you do much later when your system is mature, but you guys were designed from the ground up to support that. Yeah, we, 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 from the beginning, we wanted to support, you know, correctness was important. And so now, nowadays, there's another system that uh, at least uh, us on the outside hear about, uh, which is Dataflow. Uh, and actually, in many ways, actually, I checked uh, a few weeks ago, in many ways, actually, Millwheel is kind of not really part of the messaging anymore, right? So it's all about data flow. Right. So, I mean, the the data flow is, you can think of it, there's there's sort of two projects um, that we, we say data flow came out of, is uh, the Flume Java project, which, for anybody not familiar, is sort of a higher level language for describing large scale massive scale data processing systems, um, and then running it through an optimizer and then coming up with an execution plan that, you know, originally from the original Flume Java paper was to, to execute batch pipelines on MapReduce. Um, the basic idea there being that, you know, we had all sorts of use cases at Google where people were stringing together these series of, of MapReduces and it was just complex and difficult to deal with and you had to try to manually optimize them for performance. Um, and so if you kind of do what the database folks have done for a while and you, you let them build up this Thing that's sort of like a query plan or you know essentially a, a data flow plan run it through an optimizer you can figure out you know you can figure out a, a highly optimal way to partition all this stuff down into the lower level execution steps and just run the stuff and then people don't have to deal with all that so it was that was a big win on that side so uh who who originated the flume java project um so flume java came out of uh so craig chambers francis perry are uh let's see who else was on the team at the time and robert bradshaw I think are the three who were left on the Dataflow team who were were there on on the Flume Java stuff at the very beginning. I see. Interesting. So, so it's basically a, a way of. It sounds like it's a way of taking some of the concepts from uh, database systems into these uh, processing pipelines. Yeah, I don't know that that was necessarily the the approach that or the view that they took when they started it, but you can certainly look at it that way. Yeah, like it's sort of how do we how do we build a higher level language? I mean, you can you can you can look at it as like a compiler thing too, right? Like. Right. Um, MapReduce is more like assembly language, um, and Flume Java is more like a higher level language. And and these folks were all out of languages, so I assume that's probably more the the route that they took, you know, to actually technically get there. But so then, so then you got Flume Java and then Millwheel. So the two of them are Dataflow, um, more or less. So so the the so internally, um, you know, over time. So Flume Java paper came out, you know, years ago. I forget how many years. Um, 
And since then, what's, what's happened as far as internal data processing tools is that we've, we've moved to, to Flume being the primary, or so, so we call it Flume internally. So if I say Flume, that's what I mean, Flume Java, right. not Apache Flume. Right. Um, Flume is the primary data processing system. Um, and so uh, as part of that, for the last few years, we've been moving Millwheel uh, to be essentially a secondary execution engine for Flume Java. So you can either do it in batch mode and run on MapReduce, or you can execute it on the wheel. Um, so that's very similar then to uh, like sort of architecturally what, what you have with Dataflow. So that's essentially what we mean when we say, you know, Dataflow is Flume Java plus Millwheel. Like it's, it's sort of this evolution that's happened internally, and now we've taken it and externalized it. Oh, so essentially uh, un under the covers, so if you send a job under the covers, Dataflow will kind of figure out, oh, this looks like a uh, continuous processing job. We'll execute it with Millwheel. Or this looks like a batch processing job. We'll execute it with Flume Java. I mean, currently you specify the runner you want. Um, okay. It would be lovely to get to that someday, where we actually infer that. But yeah, there. The, I guess there was a, there's a system that came out of Twitter, right? The, what's that called? Summingbird. Summingbird. Yeah, yeah. That that did kind of uh, map reduce and storm. Right. So they do them both at the same time. So that's essentially for anybody who's not familiar with. The Lambda architecture. Um, the basic idea is that you we um, all these. There were some streaming systems that existed externally. Um, they didn't really provide fantastic correctness guarantees or consistency, or you know, sometimes just semantics. Um, but people wanted lower latency, but they also wanted to be able to get correct results eventually. So they'd start running. You know, they they had these batch systems they were running. They'd start running streaming systems uh, in parallel. Somehow merge the results together at the end. Um, and then, you know, out of this, get essentially low latency results plus eventually correct results. And so Summingbird, the idea was, well, instead of having to write two completely separate systems, you know, using two totally different APIs, we'll at least give you a single unified API and we'll run them both at the same time for you. So, um, so in, your, in your post, actually, you talked about this notion that uh, I've kind of also started uh, uh, kind of... Uh, Using and obviously I credit you. <laughs> uh, this notion that uh, you know maybe we should move away from the term batch and streaming and just describe the type of data, right? So bounded and unbounded. Yeah, I do think it's useful to to differentiate between. Although I have uh, to tell you, man, uh, streaming is such a cool term that I don't think people will give up on the term streaming. <laughs> I know it's it's a tough it's a tough switch to make. Although, like, I'm not, I'm not necessarily advocating that we don't talk about streaming at all. It's just streaming has been conflated to mean so many different things uh, in the industry. Like, it can people refer to it as a type of data. They refer to it as a type of execution engine. And when they're talking about execution engines, it's, it's become a totally loaded term because streaming engines have had wildly varying degrees of capabilities. So, you know, it becomes associated with speculative results or, you know, inaccurate results or, you know, these sorts of things. And right. so, so part of it is just trying to distance from that. Right. Um, and then the other thing is that people talk about streaming data and, and sort of imply that, oh, well, you know, you'd want a streaming system for this. But people have been using batch systems to process this unba these unbounded data sets for, you know, since batch systems existed. Like, that's largely what they were conceived for. Like, when, you know, so. Right, 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 right. So, um, in, in so part of the title of your post, actually, which was wildly popular, by the way, um, I didn't tell you this before we started, but uh, uh, a lot of people have been asking me 
when is Tyler's second post coming out? And I'm not going to name names, Tyler, but there's some big names who've been asking me. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad people have enjoyed it. I'm yeah, yeah. You know, definitely trying to get the second one out as fast as I can. Um, so part of the, your title was Goodbye to Batch, but the way you describe Dataflow is actually, um, it, it's basically a price of two systems, Flume Java and, and Millwheel, and Flume Java being a, a batch system. So. Yeah, so the, the, the goodbye to batch thing, which was the name of the, the Strata talk um, that I gave, that I kind of based the, in the London. post off. Yeah, yeah. yeah in, in London, Strata London talk. Um, I mean, the, the, there were really two reasons for naming it that. One was that it was catchy and I wanted to get people's attention. The other was that the, the, the real focus of, of what I was trying to get across was that you don't need a Lambda architecture system in order to get low latency results. Like you can have a streaming execution engine that gives you strong consistency because people are not necessarily aware of this given the state of the industry um, as far as streaming systems go currently. And so from the perspective of, you know, in Lambda architecture, you're running and you're running batch and streaming, you know, but really you should be able to say goodbye to batch. Like that's where that came Sometimes, from. Sometimes uh, in many cases, maintaining two systems and two sets of... Exactly. Systems. And dealing and dealing with merging the results afterwards, which is non-trivial in a lot of cases. Um, so... So that's where that came from. Like, there is really, like, to me, the, the primary distinction between batch and streaming systems, um, at least as far as, like, semantics go, um, or sort of practical semantics, is that, like, with batch, you, know, you can end up optimizing things differently. You can say, you know, I'm, I know ahead of time I'm going to have this massive data set. I, I'm not as worried about latency, so I can do things somewhat more efficiently, get larger bundling, and get higher efficiency. So even though we have a unified model now that, that lets you operate, you know, overbounded or unbounded data sets, essentially using either one, like you can still choose which execution engine you want in order to get the types of efficiency trade-offs you want. Um, like, so, so we published a paper on the data flow model uh, earlier this year. And one VL, of the... A VLDB paper, right? Yeah, VLDB paper. And the title of that is, you know, the data flow model, a practical approach to balancing correctness, latency, and cost. And really, that's what it comes down to is like there's there's this wide variety of use cases out there. You know, sometimes you need high correctness. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you need low latency. Sometimes higher latency is OK. And sometimes you're willing to pay a lot for for those other two features. And sometimes sometimes you don't want to pay as much. And so the real key is, at least as far as having a, a system that is broadly applicable and that people can uh, you know, use in this these many, many different types of use cases, is being able to be flexible and give people the choices to, to make the kind of trade-offs they have to make. Because practically, we just you can't optimize for all of those. Right, right. Um, so uh, I take it then in Dataflow, you have basically configuration parameters or knobs that people can turn to make these choices. So, so there is a single knob, which is I'm going to choose which runner I'm going to use. I'm going to choose batch or streaming. Um, aside from that, the, the other level at which you get uh, to sort of make these choices is when you're deciding exactly when you materialize your results within the pipeline. Uh, so that comes down to the the windowing and triggering aspects of the of the, right, the unified right. model. And that's why actually you spend a lot of time in your talk and in your post explaining some of these kind of much more basic concepts about time. Right? Yeah, and that's really important too with the the out of order processing uh, issue because, as I noted earlier, a lot of the focus in streaming has been on. Uh, has not been on out-of-order processing, or, or at least has been on you know dealing with stuff in processing time, so sort of as data arrive. And it doesn't let you do the kind of analyses that you want to do um, with events in the context of when they happened. 
Um, and you really need to understand the difference between these two time domains in order to to know what you're doing and also to to make the right choices and 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 really build the system that's going to do what you need it to do. Speaking of which, let's talk a little bit about these two aspects that you mentioned earlier uh, and try to make it kind of uh, understandable to our a wider audience here. So one of this is uh, you alluded to is out of order processing. So just naively, let's say if I ask you, well, I have the streaming system and uh, oh, what what would happen if some of my data arrived a day later? Exactly. So so most streaming systems externally, the way that they, uh, they deal with data as it comes in is, uh, well, there's a few different ways. Like one is uh, time agnostic processing. You just don't care about time. In that case, it doesn't matter. Like they can show up a day later, you'll just deal with them then. But if you actually care about time, uh, you probably end up windowing your data since you've got this massive unbounded data set. You can't just wait until it ends. And the, the way that, that most existing systems do this is they just look at data as it comes in. So you've got your data stream. You sort of assume that it's it's whatever's generating it is healthy. And as stuff shows up, you buffer it up for, you know, say five minutes. I'm going to do five-minute windows. Uh, and as soon as you've got your five-minute window of data, you pass it on downstream and say, hey, here's this next five-minute window of data. But if, like you said, a whole bunch of your data shows up a day later, and you're, you've been working under this assumption that the, the windows you've created are somehow related to the actual time when things happened, like your, your answers are just totally incorrect now. And so then uh, how, how, how does a system like MailWheel deal with this situation? So what we, what we provide instead is in our notion of windowing is that windowing is event time-based. So when, when your data arrive at the system, you can assign whatever timestamps you, you, know, you want to them from, from the data themselves. So when the data occurred on somebody's mobile device, they record what time it happened. And when it shows up in the system, we'll say, okay, they say this happened 10 days ago. It happened 10 days ago. We're going we're gonna to window it into the window for 10 days ago or, you know, the precise, precise place it needs to be. Um, and so within the system, then you have to do more buffering and you also have to be more flexible uh, in allowing the user to, to specify exactly when outputs are materialized because you no longer have this uh, sort of rolling uh, train of, well, this window was created we shove it down the pipeline. We're just going to buffer up more data and shove yeah, it down yeah. the pipeline. Yeah, yeah. So, for yeah. example, Tyler, if you had a dashboard then and you had this data that arrived a day later, so so you would refresh your dashboard. Correct. So, so the basic idea is, you know, data arrive, and you can like you might have a, a use case where you only want to output information once. But like you said, if you're building a dashboard, like say you're just doing daily stats, right? Right. Um, you'd probably a you. If data shows up a day late, you'd want to update your dashboard, like you noted. You also probably don't want your data to just be updated once a day. Like it'd be nice to see how things are going, you know, progressing through the yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, like a real, runs. like a near real time dashboard, right? Exactly. Like Google Analytics, basically. Exactly. So you, 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 what you really probably want in that situation is, as data arrive for the window that that is currently live, I'm going to give speculative results. We we know we're not done yet, but we're going to update every you know every minute or every five minutes or you know whatever works for your use case. Um, and then when you think the window's complete, which is a whole other topic of discussion of how you figure that out, but once you think the window's complete, then you give what you think is a final answer. And also, you know, depending on your oh, use so case. On, on, the, on the user interface, you have a, some kind of notion that this, this answer is tentative and or this answer is uh, final. Uh, right. So we have, so, so Dataflow has this notion of watermarks, which um, bears some discussion, but essentially it's a, it's a notion of progress. Uh, in time through the system. So saying, you know, the system believes that that the data that we've seen so far is complete up to time X, you know, up to, 
it's now 12 p.m. I think I've seen all the data up to 10 a.m. You know, or, or whatever. Um, so you can kind of use that as a notion of thinking that your data is complete. Anything that you emit before the before the watermark is uh, passes it is essentially uh, speculative. Um, you're saying I, I don't think the data is complete yet, but I'm giving you a partial answer because it's useful to have these answers that that evolve over time. And then anything that shows up after the watermark is essentially late, and you can decide what to do with it. Then you can say, well, I'm gonna you know I'm gonna throw it away because I don't care or I want my data to be complete as, as complete as possible, so I'm going to go ahead and update it some more and, and give a new revised answer, even, even though I'd, I'd already said I thought things were complete. So uh, going back to your initial use case, or one of your initial use cases, which was billing, so in that situation, then uh, you might have the notion of, hey, uh, the previous time I closed the box, there might have been, uh, we might have to readjust. Yeah, you could. I mean, you can think of it. So, so actually, billing is interesting because... Um, the banking industry has solved this for years. Like you, like with ATMs and things like the ATMs are never always online and always connected. They can't, they just can't keep a completely, totally consistent view of the world in, right. in every, you know, for everybody. And so the way they deal with it is just, you know, they, they sort of set up limits. They let you withdraw a certain amount of money, even if they're disconnected. And at the end of the day, they reconcile it. And so what, what may happen is that, you know, you think, oh, well, you know, well, I've, I've taken, $10 out of my bank account, but you actually had no money in there. They find that out. And after the fact that they essentially, you know, you'll get, you'll get, you know, a correction. Right. Uh, and so, um, we're, we're building that into the system as well. There's this notion of retraction. So you can, you can say, well, you know, here's, here's, a, here's a current value and, and, uh, more data comes in. You can say, well, here's, here's an updated value. And we're also going to retract the previous value. We're going to take that back because we thought it was correct, but we realized something was wrong. So you used a word there, consistency, which brings me to the other point. So maybe explain to folks out there this notion of strong consistency, which uh, those of us in distributed systems know about, but maybe uh, just kind of give a quick uh, definition, particularly in this context of streaming. Yeah, I mean, all I really mean about, or the, the main thing I mean is just like like in streaming, you often have this persistent state that you're storing over time. Uh, sort of your, you know, your, your ongoing computation. And you need to keep that, that state correct. It needs to remain correct in light of machine failures, in light of weird ne network issues, um, like a machine that thought it was owning a certain piece of data. Uh, so there's a network partition. Uh, another machine gets assigned that, that piece of data. And then the other one, the network partition goes away. Now you have two machines that, that both think that they own a piece of data. Like you need, you need to have a system built that, that does the right thing and only allows one actor at any given point in time to actually own the data and make sure that everything stays consistent and you don't, you know, you don't acknowledge that you've received and processed something until it's actually been durably committed, things like that. So actually, uh, one of the interesting things about this space is that uh, just when you think that you have a set of stream processing engines that are good, someone writes another one. <laughs> <laughs> just uh, actually, uh, uh, Twitter just announced a fork of Storm, right? Heron. And then I think there are some other people in Intel who have another system. But anyway, so if you were to if you were to wake up now and and uh, had kind of the same use cases at Google, would you still write Millwheel? Um, let me think briefly. I mean, yeah, I think so. Out of well, order processing and strong consistency were kind of the two things that you said uh, you really needed. And scale too. Yeah. yeah, there's there's really nobody that does this does all of those as as deeply as we need it yet. People are getting there. Like, it's going to happen. 
but yeah, absolutely. I'd say there's there's nobody that quite captures all of those yet. Right, right, right. So on the on the strong consistency side, the Spark guys will say they do that, right? Oh, they do. Like so. We didn't pay a whole lot of attention to external stuff internally. We were kind of focused on what we were doing. Um, but I, I do remember when we were we were writing the Millwheel paper and we we started noticing Spark. It was it was great because it was like, whoa, yes, yes, somebody's doing a principled system that has strong consistency. This is fantastic. Like they've they've always really had that as a core principle, and I think that's great. Um, so we've ta- we've been talking mostly here about processing systems, um, which you know, so to slightly differentiate them from uh, uh, systems that do the actual analysis, analytics, right? So, but I think in many ways, some of the stream processing systems are used for at least the simple reporting, right? So, like maybe a, approximate counts and uh, maybe max, mins, what else? Uh, most frequent items. So there's some built-in uh, analysis capability to many of these uh, stream processing engines. And built-in meaning people write libraries on top of them, correct? Yeah, and I mean a lot of them, like you noted, came out of SQL. So yeah. sort of how do we how do we turn SQL into a streaming uh, sort so of? So actually, the, the again the Spark guys, I think you can use Spark SQL to to hit the, the streaming RDDs, I believe. You can use Spark SQL. You can also use, uh, you know, Java or Scala. They have an API for that. So certainly, yeah, pe- like these are sort of the the nice thing about things like counts, you know, uh, sums, these sorts of things, is that they they very naturally um, it's very natural to apply them to streams. Um, and so you end up with lots of libraries that do this, and they're also very useful. Um, so yeah, you it there is quite a broad swath of users that do just relatively simple things, but they just want to be able to do them. At large scale and you know with with strong consistency. Yeah, so I, I guess uh, in the in the past people talked about right. So in a streaming system, you have these three things: uh, uh, velocity, volume, and exactness. So if you wanted all three, it would be tough. So then people so, started saying, well, maybe uh, on the exactness side, we can just have approximate answers because after all, these answers change. All the time, but then you bring up the billing example. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't buy the whole velocity exactness uh, thing. Like you can do it. Like certainly at any given point. Like if you don't have all the data yet, you're not going to have an exact answer. But that's just that's just like that's just the nature of the problem, right? Like I can't make up an answer out of nowhere. Um, but you certainly can build a, a system that has strong correctness and has massive throughput and gives you low latency. Like there's there's no reason you can't do that. So, so again, going back to analytics. So, if you were, if you, so the uh, data flow system is a data processing engine, but if you wanted to do interactive analytics, uh, you would ha- you would use a different system, right? Like BigQuery. Yeah, for us, that system's BigQuery. Like, BigQuery is designed for you know analyzing massive, like very massive data sets very efficiently um, in an interactive manner, and it does it very well. Uh, so let's give the listeners who've long been waiting for your second post a hint as to what is going to be in the uh, follow-up post. So, I mean, the content of it is essentially trying to walk through concrete examples, showing you uh, both the the API sort of model aspects of, of how you approach different, uh, different use cases, and also just trying to further solidify the concepts I talked about in the previous post. So... 
Um, in fact, if you like, if you want a preview of it, you can if you read the our VLDB paper on the data flow model, like the the big example section in that paper, uh, is very similar to what I'm going to be talking about. Um, so basically, you know, setting up a very simple example with a few data points and saying, you know, let's look at this over, you know, uh, here's what it'd look like if we computed a sum in a batch engine, and here's what it would look like with a streaming engine. Oh, but in streaming, you know, we've, we'll probably have a, an unbounded data source now. How do we deal with that? Are we going to, you know, well, well, let's window it and we'll see what happens. And then, uh, well, we want, we want lower latency results, or we want to deal with late data. Like, how do we deal with that? And what does this actually look like? And, and having concrete examples, concrete diagrams, and there'll be some animations showing how these things happen over time. Uh, so just really to try to try to drive home the point of how all these uh, different APIs interact, all the different things you need to deal with, and, and what the shape of your output looks like when you're dealing with exactly, essentially the same data set, like just the varying trying to drive home that flexibility argument. Um, so the other thing I wanted to point out is Tyler will be speaking at Strata plus Hadoop World in Singapore, which is on December 1, 2, and 3. So Tyler, how, how is the talk in Singapore going to be different from the one in London? That's a good question. Um, I actually haven't written it yet. <laughs> um, but you know, the, the, the talk, for, talk for Singapore, what I'm, it's very similar in that I'm trying to, to still cover high-level concepts, but uh, I'm covering them at a at a lower level. I'm, I want to dive into the system architecture level and show you know here's we you know we started with MapReduce, uh, then we got to Flume Java and sort of you can, looking at it at an architecture level what what changed and why did we change it, and then there's you know Millwheel happened around the same time as Flume Java. What did how did it develop and what does it look like uh, conceptually from a, a low-level architecture point of view, and then you know how have we baked us how have we baked all of this together in Dataflow. And also, what new things have we added, and and what how has it changed things? So, you know, both to I think it's interesting just to see kind of the the conceptual things that these systems are built on, uh, the architectural level pieces they're built on, and sort of how it all fits together. I think it makes it easier, or you know, it gives you a better understanding of of what data processing is and, and how the systems operate, and makes it easier for you to make educated choices about you know which systems to use and and how to apply them. So. So, by the way, in Singapore, actually, uh, we have a track on IoT in real time. Uh, and in particular, I don't know if you know this, but uh, the country of Singapore has a big uh, initiative around the smart nation, which is kind of smart cities. So it's basically oh. one of these uh, uh, kind of uh, major use cases for IoT. So I imagine the Google Cloud Platform has, uh, has, to, has components, right, including data flow for dealing PubSub and Dataflow for dealing with kind of these IoT applications. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, we've got PubSub for ingestion. It's it's very easy to use. It just scales up to, you know, very large scale with essentially no intervention. Dataflow for data processing, um, BigQuery for the type of uh, offline analysis kind of stuff you talked about. Um, what, about the, what about the uh, dashboard capability? Um, so I... Like as far as building dashboards go, like you can generally build those on App Engine. Um, you know, we've got essentially, you know, the the whole uh, Google Compute Engine GC platform. Like you can you can build any sort of essentially you know cloud based service that you want just running on top of VMs there. So, I, in general, we we've kind of I think we kind of have the all of our bases covered as far as all the the various things you might want to be able to do there. And there's also some very new and interesting things in the works that I unfortunately can't actually talk about. So do you guys have kind of like this, uh, the storage layer for uh, kind of this much more uh, rapid updates and inserts 
I guess that's your uh, big table. Yeah, so we have Cloud Big Table for that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you, you can access it through the HBase API. So. Which is, yeah, yeah, which is actually HBase API compatible, which actually uh, is awesome for yeah. HBase developers. Exactly. So uh, what's your next major project? Are you going to stay with kind of this uh, streaming uh, space for a while? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's, a, there's still a lot to be so done. So we're not done yet, man? No, we're not done yet. We're we're working on some other cool stuff. You know, there's a. There are so a lot what of what that, are the major challenges in streaming, as far as you can tell? Well, so so one of the things that I'm I've been focusing on is there's a lot of people that are using. So once you have a streaming system or streaming execution engine uh, that gives you you know this this scale, especially if it's autom- you know automatically scaling like like Dataflow does, that gives you consistency um, and gives you. Um, you know, strong tools for for working with your data, then people start to build these really complicated services on them. And they even start to build, you know, it may not just be sort of data processing, like it actually becomes a nice platform for orchestrating events or orchestrating, you know, sort of distributed state machines and things like that. We have a lot of users internally doing this sort of stuff. And, and we really want to make that easier and and sort of solve that to the level that I think we've solved the other stuff with windowing and triggers. So that's that's one of the areas we're working on pretty actively. So now, now that uh, I, I imagine, since your post, a lot of people have reached out to you. Is that correct? Yes. So then uh, you're interfacing now with others, uh, I guess, open source stream processing communities. So um, are is there like a healthy back and forth between uh, Google and some of these outside uh, groups? Yeah, we've been talking to a lot of them. I mean, one of the things. So one of the things we really wanted to do with Dataflow was not have people feel like they're locked into running on Google's cloud. Like we think our system is, is fantastic. We obviously think it's the best thing that you should be running data flow programs on, but we didn't want people to feel like that was, they were stuck there. Um, so that, you know, all of the, the SDK for the data flow is open source and we are working very hard to try to get people uh, to increase the amount of open source runners available. So there's a, there's a spark runner. Uh, there's an Apache flink runner um, so, if, you know, from our perspective, the more the more people we can have building up uh, support for executing data flow platform or data flow pipelines, you know, in open source on top of open source systems, the better. There's also the uh, the angle of essentially con- connectivity. Like this is actually a big deal because almost everybody out there is is using open source systems, right? So, right. we if you're already using existing sources, it makes it a heck of a lot easier to to migrate over if if you can. Know, interface with existing uh, data sources and things like that. So we're, we're yeah, so for example, I guess if I'm a Kafka user, can I swap out PubSub for Kafka? Um, yeah, you absolutely should be able to. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And still feed it into Dataflow, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, this has been great. We look forward, uh, I and uh, many people are looking forward to this next post. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> and also, uh, your talk in Singapore. Yeah, thank you. All right. You can follow Tyler on Twitter at T-A-K-I-D-A-U. That's T-A-K-I-D-A-U. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.